0: colonization has been uprooting people and plants on this continent for hundreds of years. And if we really want to, you know, build a regenerative agriculture, and if we want to balance the climate, we have to heal that process of uprooting.
1: I'm Tiffany Patton, and this is Real Food Reads, the book club and podcast from Real Food Media, where we read the latest books on food, culture, and politics, then talk with the authors themselves. In recent years, popular press and documentaries like the celebrated and hotly debated Kiss the Ground film have suggested that regenerative agriculture is a new innovation and movement led primarily by white people. But that isn't true. I'm so happy to have Liz Carlisle, professor, author, and agroecologist, open our 2022 Real Food Reads season. Her latest book, Healing Grounds, Climate, Justice, and the Deep Roots of Regenerative Farming, shares the stories of Black, Indigenous, Latino, and Asian American farmers around the United States who are using their ancestral agricultural traditions to heal the soil, connect with their culture, and build our collective climate resilience while fighting for racial justice. And we're so lucky to have Aide Guzman, a soil scientist whose work and story is featured in the book. Join us for today's conversation. This season, we're focused on the catastrophic loss of biodiversity and the people who are working to protect it. And I'm really excited to launch this season with Healing Grounds, Climate, Justice, and the Deep Roots of Regenerative Farming by Liz Carlyle. And also really thrilled to have Iday here as well, whose work and stories featured in the book and specifically in the chapter Hidden Hotspots of Biodiversity, which we'll be talking about extensively today. Uh, this chapter is incredibly rich and you cover so much everything from microorganisms in the soil to the history of agroecology and the impacts that NAFTA and the Green Revolution had on farmers and biodiversity in Mexico. Uh, I could ask you both a dozen questions for each subsection within this one chapter if there's all the time in the world, but there isn't. Liz, this is the third book you've authored or co-authored, and I want to know what drove you to write this book and why
0: now? Yeah. Well, first of all, thank you so much for having us, Tiffany. I'm such a huge fan of real food media. I've always been really interested by this uh, prospect that, you know, farming, agriculture currently is a huge climate problem, but it can be shifted to be a climate solution. And I've always been interested specifically in talking to farmers who are working on doing that and who are already kind of realizing that promise with the land that they work Um, But in the last few years, as this idea of regenerative agriculture has gotten a lot more mainstream attention, I've been really struck by this huge gap among my colleagues in the research community in terms of just how powerful a climate solution they think regenerative agriculture might be. So some colleagues, uh, like the folks who co-authored the four per mil study, this huge international team of scientists.
1: Four per mil,
0: M-I-L-L-E, refers to a study and an initiative.
1: A group of scientists found that if we increase carbon storage in the soil by 0.4% per year, or four parts per thousand, that's the four per mil, we could compensate for some greenhouse gas emissions and slow the increase of CO2 in the atmosphere
0: they calculated, hey, 20 to 35 percent of human-caused emissions could be offset um, through these strategies of soil carbon sequestration and regenerative agriculture. But on the other hand, there have been a lot of commentaries in scientific journals and blog posts basically saying, ah, this is really more greenwashing by industrial agriculture. It's smoke and mirrors. We really need to focus more on other things. We can't really offset that much of carbon emissions just through agriculture and these regenerative strategies alone. So I was really curious, like, why this gap? And long story short, in, in researching this book and speaking with, I think, the people I see as real leaders in regenerative agriculture, what I learned was that You know, not everybody's talking about the same thing when they say regenerative agriculture.
1: What is regenerative agriculture? It's complex and vague. There isn't a singular definition or a set of rigorous standards that define what it is. Typically, regenerative agriculture describes farming and grazing practices that rebuild soil health and support soil biodiversity.
0: If what you mean by regenerative agriculture is that the logic of the food system is going to stay pretty much the same, it's still going to be extractive, it's still going to be export oriented, but we're going to do a few individual practices like reduce tillage or cover crops here and there, that's really not a powerful climate solution. But if you take the word regeneration to heart and you really follow the leadership of indigenous communities and communities of color for whom these kinds of regenerative strategies are actually contextualized in these much deeper, long histories of reciprocal relationships to land, that is a really powerful climate solution. So this book is an attempt to say, regenerative agriculture really needs to follow the leadership of those indigenous communities and communities of color, such that it can realize its potential as a powerful climate solution. The chapter of Healing Grounds we're highlighting today is the hidden hotspots of
1: biodiversity. And those hotspots are in California's Central Valley, a region that produces a tremendous one-third of all produce grown in the United States. Other than being a produce powerhouse for the US, the Central Valley is known for worsening droughts, depleted soil, sinking towns, and communities bombarded with toxic air and polluted water from industrial agriculture. Tom Philpott talks about this in his most recent book, Perilous Bounty, And Mark Arax unfurls a long history of agriculture and water's role in it in his book, The Dreamed Land, both real food read selections. And as Liz states in Healing Grounds, there's another story to tell, a story of diverse small farms and home gardens in the Central Valley that are bursting with life above and below ground. Meet Aide Guzman, a soil scientist who was born and raised in the Central Valley. While getting her PhD at UC Berkeley, Ade conducted firsthand research in the Central Valley, observing bees and taking hundreds of soil samples to see if those diverse small farms could make a difference. Here's what she found.
2: For example, on the bee side, um, I kept thinking, well, Monoculture Ag provides a monoculture of the specialized fruit source, what bees need. And so maybe it's actually positive. And then on the flip side, I was like, well, is that really true? And so... And then for the uh, below-ground biodiversity, there's so much research on the fact that the symbiotic fungus that I work on needs a lot of diversity above ground. And so I was like, Mm -hmm. well, shoot, like, you know, if you had had 100 years of transforming this landscape into this monoculture, like, have we, we have no place of return. So when I went in, I kind of had these, like, it could go both ways. And there wasn't a lot of research to draw on to uh, feel grounded of what actually what I would find. But we found the opposite. We found that these really small scale farms that have introduced high amounts of crop diversity on land that used to be monocultures, bolster you know, these bees, even those that specialize on one food source on these farms. And then they double the amount of the symbiotic fungus below ground that a lot of soil health. People have really pointed to as a way to go.
1: Aide loves to talk about fungus specifically our vascular mycorrhizal fungi, or AMF.
2: It's like my favorite thing to do is to talk <laughs> about this symbiotic fungus. So I always say to really think about these fungi, you'll have to go back a 450 million years ago. And I think that really puts everything into context mm-hmm. because um, they're supposedly helped plants to get onto land, which is like a huge feat, right? It's where uh, the food that we produce comes from. And the way they helped that is that these first plants that came onto land had such a limited root system. And so they really couldn't grab all those nutrients from the soil that they needed. And so these fungi, they formed a symbiosis inside the roots and they formed these filaments, hair-like strands that would go into the soil and scavenge these nutrients in the nooks and crevices in this like complex soil ecosystem and grab those uh, to get to the plant. And not only that, like the AMF also need carbon from the plant to be able to provide this Mm. and so you know the plant produces carbon from you know taking in co2 and light and then captures that carbon into its plants and then gives it to the fungus and then the fungus that keeps the carbon in the soil and that's why it's one of the ways that we can you know as liz was alluding to support climate solutions in this period yeah so it's really cool group of fungus and it's been largely ignored Mm -hmm. and It's sad because people think that over 70 or even over 80 or 90 percent of all plants associated with it. So they're everywhere. We've just ignored it. And especially in agricultural systems.
1: Okay. Thank you. And so you mentioned that these fungi needs diversity, right? To like sort of flourish. And one of the many great points in this book was just we need a diversity of plants for a diversity of microbes in the soil. And we also need a diversity of farmers. And farming techniques that are rooted in tradition, as you mentioned, Liz, um, they're like a beneficial part of a system and not the controller or manager of a system. So how can we cultivate this diversity in farming techniques and farmers? Yes.
2: That's a great question. And so if we go back to the Central Valley, you have to understand that agriculture in California was never small mm-hmm. and that the way agriculture got established in California is through the taking of land from indigenous communities. Mm-hmm. Try to think about the way we support more diverse agricultural practice and diverse farmers. We have to think about, specifically in the context of California, is land and who owns the land, who's operating the land. And the reason I say that is because a lot of the farmers I work with are farmers of color. They're immigrant refugee farmers, specifically long, who are refugees who came from Southeast Asia and Mexicans who used to be farm workers and then uh, got some land that they could farm on. But that's sort of a recent uh, trend in the Central Valley. But they also, these small diversified farms only encompass less than 1% of the land in the area. Wow. And so, you know, you have lots of agriculture, but they're less than 1%. One of the goals from my research that I thought a lot about is, okay, here we're showing that these small farms can, you know, cultivate biodiversity both below and above ground, but we just don't have the support for these farmers to implement the practices mm-hmm. into the Central Valley.
0: You know, so many of the small farmers in the Central Valley um, that I've learned about through IDA's research and some of the other folks that I spoke to, so many of the farmers who are implementing this below-ground and above-ground biodiversity don't have long-term land tenure. And in order to actually you know, sequester carbon in the soil, all these practices take time. Um, and you know, roots is something that I heard again and again from yeah. scientists that I spoke with for this project, that the key to feeding those below-ground microbial ecosystems that facilitate soil carbon sequestration is to keep roots in the ground mm. all year round Perennial plants, which are a huge feature of basically all natural ecosystems. And then when you have annual plants, you know, replacing plants as soon as you harvest them with another cycle of plants. And so that made me think a lot about, you know, what is a deeply rooted culture or society look like? And it's the absolute opposite of the California history, you know, that Ida just narrated and, and the U.S. history in general. Mm-hmm. And so I think that's really focused me on the idea that colonization has been uprooting people and plants on this continent for hundreds of years. And if we really want to, you know, build a regenerative agriculture and if we want to balance the climate, we have to heal that process of uprooting.
2: Gosh, Liz, I love your response. Like, just ecologically speaking, like, we need these roots on the ground. And Liz mentioned earlier four per mil initiative for agriculture. Mm-hmm. And I just read a recent paper that just basically said, yes, you know, we can uh, keep aiming for this. But actually, like, we can't really store carbon if we keep taking plants out of it. in agriculture, that's all it does. And so there's this limit to, like, how much carbon that can be stored on how we're actually treating plants in these agricultural systems.
1: The core tenet of, of agroecology is really about cultivating biodiversity. And Liz, you shared this great history of agroecology in Mexico. And can you tell us a little bit about um, about the history of agroecology in Mexico and how it intersected with the Green Revolution?
0: yeah, um I was really fascinated to learn this kind of deeper story of how the Green Revolution got started and also how the resistance to the Green Revolution got started. I had sort of always thought that the Green Revolution started with Norman Borlaug, who might be a familiar character to folks who who listen to real food media, who sort of um, you know bred wheat to be high yielding under a very specific set of conditions. Um, access to chemical fertilizer, access to chemical herbicides, irrigation, and these particular seeds. Um, and that's sort of what Norman Borlaug was interested in developing, and ultimately, you know, started in northern Mexico, but then extended this throughout the world. And it was part of how the U.S. thought about winning the Cold War, is that Mm -hmm. if they could sort of impress the quote unquote third world that hadn't yet taken sides with this food security strategy, that they would keep them from falling to communism. Um, That's the story I had heard about the Green Revolution. And I had heard about how that, you know, led to an export oriented and input dependent agriculture that then pushed small farmers out of business. But what I didn't realize is that the Mexican agricultural program of the Rockefeller Foundation got started quite a bit before Borlaug ever showed up. Mm -hmm. And initially, it was a bunch of sort of new dealers in the U.S. and even progressive movements that were pushing the New Deal to the left who started this program and encouraged this program because they actually deeply admired the Mexican Revolution and the Mexican land reform, and they wanted to help small farmers in Mexico who were sort of newly instated on ajitos to be successful. And so the original program was dreamed up as things like composting and cover cropping and seeds that people could save. It was supposed to be originally for small farmers growing corn. And it was only in this sort of Cold War geopolitical context that all of a sudden, Norman Rockefeller, who had been kind of uh, not very admired by his colleagues within Rockefeller for his approach, all of a sudden had success with something very different. But then the other person who was working within the Rockefeller Foundation, and here again, this was news to me, was this young economic botanist named Ephraim Hernandez Zolakotsi, And he um, was born and raised in Mexico. He's from an indigenous background. He went to an Ivy League school, but then wanted to come back to Mexico and work with farmers. So he was pretty excited when he got this job offer from the Mexican Agricultural Program to go around and collect corn seed from small farmers all over Mexico and Latin America to kind of build up this gene bank of genetic diversity. And he... He loved that work. He met all these cool farmers. He heard all their amazing stories about their varieties and when they plant them and companionship with what plants and which ones are for which foods and all that kind of stuff. Mm -hmm. But then he was really horrified with what Rockefeller was doing with it which was not in service of any of that, you know, diversity of people and plants and practices, but in in service of this Green Revolution approach. So he actually started speaking out against the Rockefeller Foundation. This is Efraim Hernandez Zolocotzi, who used to work there, became a professor in Mexico. And long story short, um, helped to develop the field that we now know as agroecology as explicitly a resistance movement uh, fueled by indigenous people and small farmers in Mexico to this green revolution paradigm.
1: So many times when you think about the definition of agroecology, people say, you know, it's a science, a movement and a practice. And the movement part um, is sometimes lost when we're talking about agroecology or what I've heard people talking about agroecology. And so it's really great to hear it framed this way and how it started in Mexico as really a resistance.
0: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it has everything to do with what you think the purpose of agriculture should be (laughs) and who it's for, who benefits and who pays.
1: Right. So speaking of agroecology, you mentioned Steve Gleason, a renowned agroecologist and his reorientation or reeducation on the topic of weeds as he was learning. Can you share that story with us?
0: Steve was a was a young ecologist um, in the 70s, and he actually co-hosted this conference with Ephraim Hernandez-Zolokozzi when they first started using the term agroecology. Um, and so Ephraim Hernandez-Zolokozzi is kind of the senior scholar. Steve Gleesman is this young ecologist. And through a series of events, uh, Steve Gleesman, very, very early in his career, had ended up working at this little college in southern Mexico that had actually been created to foster a Green Revolution approach, like really specifically to do that, to, to convert this group of um, Mayan heritage farmers in southern Mexico and get them to you know, basically tear down the forest and make a new wheat belt. Um, that didn't happen, thankfully. And part of the reason is they had an ecology department at this little college, and the guy who ran it was sort of in like, you know, on good terms with the Green Revolution people, but he'd gotten a master's degree with Ephraim Hernandez Zolicozzi. So he was really (laughs) sympathetic to this. They were calling it ethnobotany kind of in the years before um, agroecology emerged. So anyway, Steve Gleesman shows up in this context and he had done his graduate work on allelopathy, which is when plants send out these chemical signals that either inhibit or support the growth of other plants. So he's a young ecologist, he specializes in this. Here he is in Southern Mexico. He's got this orientation towards working with local farmers. And he thinks, well, if I'm gonna find the allelopathic plants, probably what I should do is just ask the local farmers what weeds do you struggle with? Because those are probably going to be pretty potent plants that are likely to have allelopathic properties. Mm-hmm. So he goes around and he asks farmers um, about this using the Spanish word, "maleza," which is sort of what he thinks about in Spanish. How do you ask people about their weeds? And people are like, nope, no maleza here. <laughs> He's like, dang, that seems impossible. <laughs> but, but eventually people start, you know, responding to him with this word monte. Um, which basically just means non-crop plant. Mm -hmm. And they'll say, uh, buen monte, mal monte. But these aren't actually stable characterizations of a particular plant. Like it could be buen monte, one day in one context, Mm -hmm. (laughs) but then mal monte, another day. It has to do with like function in the moment. And so this idea of like, managing a group of beings that are in the ecosystem without eliminating them or understanding them as being incompatible with growing food. And so he, he tells this story a lot. He tells it in his agroecology textbook as just this moment of paradigm shift, of, mm-hmm. of thinking about farming being embedded in an ecosystem rather than having to eliminate the natural ecosystem before you raise food.
1: Mm. I love that story so much makes really clear to me just the power of our words and how it shapes, you know, the way that we view the world and how we interact with it. Can you tell us um, a little bit about, well, your first interaction with agriculture and how that differed from um, how you saw agriculture and farming take place in your dad's hometown?
2: Yeah, so as I'm thinking about this question, I sometimes when I think about agriculture, like I feel like there isn't a moment where it wasn't part of my life, It's Mm -hmm. been kind of everything since I've been a kid, but there are a few moments that like have made an impact on me in terms of the way I think about agriculture, the way I like learned to relate with agriculture. It feels like two, these two distinct worlds of agriculture. Mm
0: -hmm. One
2: is where I grew up, which is where, you know, I've spent most of my life and most of my work in, which is the Central Valley. And, you know, the way... I related to agriculture growing up is you know my parents coming home from work, and you know she smelled like rotten tomatoes. Mm-hmm. and so that was sort of my reality for a long time. But along the ways, there was always this my parents always reminiscing and talking about where they had grown up, and they would describe such a drastically different landscape. And if you've ever driven to the Central Valley, it's flat. you know, it's just mm-hmm. this expansive landscape. And my parents would talk about, you know this, this um canyon that they had grown up in and how, you know, topographically rich it was, and that they would walk up um, along the slope on the top of the 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 plateau there and then they would go farm and all these things and it just seemed so different. I just couldn't imagine that this world existed. And then when I finally went as a kid, I got to see this place and that's when I felt like I began to think about or relate to agriculture in a very different way. It didn't feel like my family was, like, being hurt by it or my family was being, mm-hmm. um, like, forced to do it. It just felt different. And one of the motivating factors for a lot of my research has been that, like, when I was a kid, I didn't understand why they had left this really beautiful area and this area where, like, you could just grow food and, you know, we didn't have to go to food banks. Like, I didn't really understand why they had left. And mm-hmm. and but I know why. Like, I know why, but I still didn't under- understand why and so I think um, a lot of work has ignored uh, people like my family who farms you know in this really crop diverse way in these like agroecological practices but then they get displaced from their land like you mm-hmm. know, we talked about earlier and you know so you know I, I tend to relate to agriculture in these two sort of uh, dichotomous ways and I think it speaks to what agriculture is agriculture could be used as a tool of colonization, but it can also be used as a tool of cultural empowerment. And yeah, I feel like sometimes it's sort of coming to terms with both of those um, perspectives of agriculture seems difficult. Yeah.
1: Thank you for sharing that, Aide. Uh, You mentioned earlier uh, about your parents and not understanding why there is this sort of agriculture that's being practiced here that, that hurts people. Um, that is harmful, and I, you know, often when we do think about labor, especially uh, in the U.S. farm labor in particular, it is super oppressive. You know, there people are really marginalized and exploited, and work under unhealthy conditions. And uh, that isn't the only way to do it. So, can you tell us how farming and labor is organized differently in El Pedregal?
2: Yeah. So, you know, labor. So, my family's from in Pedregal, this tiny little town um, in. Uh, Hidalgo in Mexico, and it's about two hundred people. It's a small little town, and when I think about labor, and I think it actually reminds me a lot of the farmers I worked with. It's very family focused in sort of the way you know labor is divided and who uh, gets to work on the land, and um, and also the benefits you're able to get from it. And Mm -hmm. so it reminds me of two things in the Central Valley that I think in are parallels and also sharp contrast. So A lot of the immigrant farmers I work with also uh, bring family into uh, farming and it becomes this like family, this family endeavor, which reminds me a lot of the way my family farmed in Mexico. And unfortunately, because of that, they've actually been, um, you know, regulators of labor have uh, affected them because, you know, they're employing family or people who are much younger um, because of the labor practices that have been practiced on larger farms that have been really oppressive to people, but they get deemed on it.
1: So there are some other examples of reciprocal labor practices uh, that you talk about in, in Healing Grounds. So can you tell us a little bit about that and how that's interacted with labor policies in the U.S.?
0: Yeah. So when I was interviewing Aide about this research study um, that she did to to sort of show these relationships between above-ground biodiversity and below-ground biodiversity on these small farms in the Central Valley, it really interesting to me that she mostly ended up working with immigrant farmers, which was who had these really biodiverse farms. But it actually wasn't all Mexican-American or Central American immigrants. There were also a lot of Hmong farmers. And one of the things that I learned from this whole collection of people is that um, Hmong farmers in Laos, where they're from, uh, used reciprocal labor practices to bring in harvests. And so You know, there'd be a lot of work for a short period of time when crops were ready to harvest. And so everybody would sort of go to the farm that was ready for harvest. And then when everything was harvested there, they would go to the next farm that was ready for harvest. And people would do this in these really big groups of mostly extended family and sometimes, I guess, sort of like friends who were like family. Um, And then Hmong people were displaced by the Vietnam War. Um, for a series of reasons, the Vietnam War made it unsafe for them to stay where they were in Laos. Hmong people came as refugees, and many, many Hmong people landed in the Fresno area. And it was very different ecologically than their sort of mountain homelands in Laos. So they had to adapt a lot of their agricultural practices. But they were extraordinarily successful in doing that, I think. And one of the things they adapted were these reciprocal labor practices. But as Aide was mentioning, They got dinged on it because of U.S. regulatory frameworks that were created to respond to the oppression of industrial agriculture. And so specifically, workers' compensation insurance is required for every non-family employee. And non-family in this U.S. regulatory context is interpreted as meaning non-immediate family. Mm -hmm. And so these um, groups of Hmong extended family members, all of a sudden there were all these people who were contributing to the farm who didn't qualify as family under this U.S. regulatory framework. And so there were these prohibitive costs that were supposed to be paid for workers' compensation insurance. And none of this was explained in people's language. There was no outreach. And people ended up getting fined thousands of dollars. There were these big multi-agency sweeps in the early 2000s. And so I think it's a really good example of how a group of immigrants actually brought this really adaptive practice, but then it was completely misunderstood in the context of California agriculture.
1: Um, Something that I forgot to even write down here, but which I thought was really important, Liz, is just sort of your orientation for the whole book, which... um you know, a lot of people will say that the trouble with farming here in the U.S. is the industrialization of it or it started with World War II. But can you tell us um, what you've uncovered in your research and like, what's the roots of the problem with U.S. agriculture?
0: Yeah, that's a really well stated question, Tiffany. And I think you're absolutely right that maybe for a lot of current U.S. farmers, maybe, you know, like family farmers who are struggling to hang on to the farm and really concerned about the environmental and social harm associated with, with current agricultural practices, it can be easy to get focused on industrialization as the problem and the rise of these massive agrochemical giants as the problem. And there's no doubt that that is a huge problem. And I think we have to ask, why was the United States primed to accept this agrochemical model of agriculture in the World War II and post-World War II era. And I think the answer to that is that there was already an extractive logic that had been initiated through colonization and that agriculture on this continent in a European-American context was designed to facilitate colonization. It actually Mm -hmm. wasn't designed around the goal of Mm -hmm. producing food. And I know that sounds crazy that agriculture wasn't designed to produce food, (laughs) but Mm -hmm. it's true. It was designed to facilitate colonization. It was designed to facilitate a particular kind of movement of power and wealth. And that's why it's extractive. Carbon being extracted from soil is part of that extractive process, Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. but we have to look at the whole suite Mm -hmm. of extractive processes and we have to shift that logic away from extraction because even though... Certain communities are on the front lines of that extraction, indigenous communities, communities of color. Ultimately, and I think this is what a lot of small white family farmers are seeing now, is that extraction, it ultimately disrupts all life. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, white family farmers have every reason to look to the leadership of indigenous communities, black communities, communities of color, who've been seeing this coming down the pike for hundreds of years now, developing regeneration as resistance. We need to all take that leadership because otherwise, you know, it's, it's life on the planet that's threatened. One thing I like going back to is like,
2: you know, this, like exactly what you're saying, this notion that agriculture is designed to be extractive. Here Mm -hmm. is a tool of colonization is that, you know, going to this question of like, what is food? Right. And if we, And if we think about it, like are we actually growing food in some parts? First of all, but also, and the answer is usually no. Instead, it's this uh, piece that Lisa says, like agriculture is extractive. And I always go back to almonds, right? Like almonds are an export crop, right? These are, this is not necessarily to nourish the community around. And same thing with, you know, sowing corn in the Midwest, right? It's designed to be extractive, not necessarily to nourish people.
1: As we got to the end of our time together, I asked Liz and Idae for some final thoughts. What do they want people to know about climate justice and regenerative farming? Here's what they had to say.
0: I think the one message that I want people to come away with is that the work of racial justice and the work of confronting climate change in the context of agriculture, those two things are so deeply intertwined and we really need to think about them synergistically. And I guess I'm specifically speaking to folks in the regenerative agriculture movement who came in through climate concerns. Mm -hmm. We gotta tackle racial justice. We gotta tackle colonization head on. That's the root cause of the climate problems we're seeing in agriculture and we just can't be successful and effective if we don't ally with racial justice movements.
1: Nice.
2: I always tell people that thinking just about carbon is just a short-sighted solution. The root of the problem is much bigger than that, and the approach should be about racial justice, about indigenous food sovereignty, about sort of land sovereignty. And Mm -hmm. that's going to get us a lot further than just trying to put some
1: carbon into the soil. I'm Tiffany Patton, and that was Liz Carlisle author of Healing Grounds, Climate, Justice, and the Deep Roots of Regenerative Farming, alongside Aide Guzman. Thank you for tuning in to another Real Food Reads episode. Make sure to subscribe to our podcast and leave us a review. Follow Real Food Media wherever you get your podcasts and look for more information about our work and our other episodes at www.realfoodmedia.org.